We are living in a day and an age and a culture where the core foundational truths of our faith are being attacked, they're being eroded, they are even being redefined, probably worst of all being redefined uh, by those within church, within the church world. And the primary reason for this is to fit in with culture uh, as opposed to redeeming culture with the absolute truths of our faith. I mean, that's why Jesus came. He came to lovingly redeem the lost. He came to lovingly redeem culture. And, uh, and that's how now the example is for us as the church, not to compromise on that truth, but to lovingly take those absolute truths out into our culture and to redeem it for His glory. So this morning we look at the next big, if not the biggest core doctrine, and that is the work of Jesus on the cross. And uh, here's what this core doctrine proposes. We'll put it on screen for you. Christ's sacrifice once for all perfects us once for all. Christ's sacrifice on the cross perfects us once for all. So what do we mean by perfects us? And so a simple way of, of answering it is everything that needs to happen to us in order for us to boldly come before the creator of the universe. Think about that. Everything that needs to happen to us so that we can boldly become, be, come before the creator of the universe and call him our heavenly father. We need to be redeemed. Because like we saw last week, we are born in our in our, uh, dead in our sins and trespasses and are therefore cut off from God. We're separated from God. And God uh, is the perfection of holiness. God is the perfection of righteousness. He's the perfection of justice, grace, love, and mercy. And we are the complete opposite of that. Therefore, in order for us not to incur his rightful and justifiable wrath against us, we must become perfect too. Jesus himself said in the Gospels, we must become perfect like our heavenly Father is perfect. In other words, we need to be deemed justified. We need, we need to be deemed righteous before him. We need to be acquitted of our sins. And not just that, we need to become increasingly more righteous in our daily lives. We can sum it up like this. We need to be justified. In other words, we need to be declared perfect before him. We need to be sanctified, that is the, the process of beginning to live out this perfection in us so that one day we might be glorified with our Heavenly Father in eternity. And so the argument then is that Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice, meaning he died in our place, he died the death that we should have died. So the argument is that Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice on the cross is the only way it's the only means that that perfection can come about. It's all sufficient. Again, remember last week in that heavy sermon, so thank you for coming back. We saw that it is by grace alone that we are saved. And, but that grace came at a cost. It cost Jesus his life so that we would go from dead in our sins to life in him. Meaning Jesus is the only one good enough. He's the only one perfect enough to carry that out for us. Nothing more is needed than the cross. So let's read how our statement of faith puts it. And then we will look at a problem regarding the sufficiency of the cross. So if you have your booklets, turn to statement number six. 
says this. We'll put it on screen too for those of you who don't have your booklets. We believe that Jesus Christ, as our representative and substitute, shed his blood on the cross as the perfect, all-sufficient sacrifice for our sins. His atoning death and victorious resurrection constitute the only ground for salvation. And here is the most beautiful sum up of the gospel. Therefore, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And as a church, we love to sing these songs. I mean, the songs that we just sang this morning were just, I had goosebumps. I love singing gospel-centered songs. So we love to sing the gospel, we love to preach the gospel, we love to hear the gospel, we love to sit in our community groups and talk about it. But how do we live it? How does the gospel, the all-sufficient sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for us, how does it affect our lives? Because you see, we're living in a world that says, hey, if it's, if it's too good to be true, it's probably not true. Or they say, well, what, 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 what's the catch? What, what's the fine print in the ter- and the terms and conditions? And because we're so influenced by the world, we, we begin to think like this too. We, we either live consciously or subconsciously as if the cross was not enough to make us acceptable before God. And we try to add to it. We try to add merit to the cross. In other words, we begin to, to look towards functional saviors. So we can declare, we often do, we, we declare with our mouths and we sing, you know, Jesus is my Lord and, and my Savior and he, he paid for all of my sins, but functionally, what are we doing? Practically, what are we doing? We're looking to, to, to good works or some, some form of morality just to kind of bolster our claim before God and our standing before God. It's like, Jesus, thank you, we sing it, thank you for, for dying on the cross for all of my sins, but I'm just gonna make, I'm just gonna do this too I'm just gonna make sure that I stop doing this, I'm gonna start doing more of these things just to bolster my claim and my standing before God. You see, we're not the only ones who are tempted to do this. There was a, a group of Jewish Christians, Jews who had become born again Christians, who were tempted to go back to the old covenant system of animal sacrifices for the pardoning of their sins and their, their righteous uh, position before God. And it could have been because um, they were being persecuted by their fellow Jews, Jews who, who hadn't believed in Jesus, um, persecuted by them for believing in this crazy idea that this guy Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah and that he then goes and dies this death on the cross uh, for, the, for the sins of the world. And so they were being persecuted to let go of this Jesus and, 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 and let go of this, this new covenant, this new way of relating to God. And we know Paul wrote to the Galatian Christians who were being deceived. So they weren't being persecuted as such, but they were being deceived by false teachers into thinking that the cross is not enough for your salvation. And so they were saying, yeah, no, no, listen, go ahead. You can believe in Jesus, that's fine, but you just have to add to it just to make sure that you are saved, that you are right before God. You have to add to the old covenant. Uh, sorry, you have to add the old covenant to the cross in order to, to be saved or maintain your salvation. So here's what I want us to do this morning. I want us to have a look at the Hebrews situation, Hebrews chapter 10, and see how the writer shows us how Christ's once for all sacrifice 
perfects us once for all. And so we'll tackle it by exposing the insufficiency of functional saviors, the insufficiency of these pseudo-saviors, and contrast it with the sufficiency of the true savior. So that's where we're going. We'll put that on screen for you. Just two points this morning. So here we go. Number one, the insufficiency of functional saviors. So let me just clarify this quickly. Jesus needs to be both. Jesus needs to be our true savior and therefore our functional savior, meaning the one that you continue to look to in order to save you and perfect you. Because the deal is who or what you are looking to, who or what you are relying on gives evidence as to who you truly are believing in. And so the Hebrew Christians may have confessed that Jesus is their Lord and Savior, but as we're going to see, they were relying on the old covenant system. And the old covenant was a system God introduced through Moses of of law keeping and animal sacrifices. It was a system to to govern their behavior for the purpose of, of setting them apart, making them distinct from the other nations for the purpose of drawing in the other nations to repentance and ultimately faith in God. But they failed to do this. They failed to do this. They failed to keep God's law because it it was just way too holy for them. And they were way too sinful like the rest of mankind, which is what we saw last week in Ephesians 2. The law couldn't change them. In other words, uh, and, and here's why the law couldn't change them. Look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1 with me. It says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. And what he's saying is the old covenant is a shadow of the new covenant. It's like, it's like foosball is to soccer. It's like a, a Hot Wheels toy car is to the real deal. Right? They're, they're shadows. They're types. Meaning they can't actually do what the real thing can do. They just simply point towards the real deal. And so what can't the old covenant do? Read on with me. It says, it can never, right? That's an absolute statement. It can never, not sometimes, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, do what? Make perfect those who draw near. That's the big key. You wanna draw near to God? Well, you have to be perfect because he's perfect. He can't have sin in his presence. And so the problem is these sacrifices can't do that. Observing the law of Moses and sacrificing lambs and pigeons and goats and whatever else it might be, they can't make you completely uh, uh, perfect before him or spiritually mature. It's not gonna change, it's not gonna take you from a sinner enslaved to sin to a saint free from the power and the penalty of, of sin. If it could, he goes on to say this in verse two. He says, otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. Again, what he's saying is if the law and the sacrifices could have made you spiritually mature and cleansed you and dealt with your guilty conscience, that's what he means there, then he says there would be no more need to offer sacrifices. I mean, imagine it. One pigeon equals a guilty-free conscience. All of your sins, past, present, and future, forgiven. And now you're, you're perfect in all of your, your ways, completely spiritually mature. No, that's not what the law and the sacrifices did. Rather, they did this. Have a look at verse three. 
But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year. Why? Verse four, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats, here's the big thing, to take away sins. That's the problem. That's what's standing in the way of you being perfect before your heavenly father. It's these sins. And these sacrifices, they can't take them away. Rather than taking them away, what they did was they just heaped more and more condemnation on us for two reasons. You, could you continually had to make sacrifices for your sins every year, and so this was just a constant reminder of how dismal a sinner they were. And, and secondly, uh, these particular sacrifices were never good enough to make you perfect before your heavenly Father because th that blood, the blood of goats and bulls, was, was never good enough. It was, it, it, what it did do is it served to cover your sin for a particular moment until you pulled off another whopper, and then you had to sacrifice another one. It's like, it's like taking the wrong medication for your illness. You know, you pop, you pop the pill and it, it might dull your headache for a moment, but as soon as the medication wears off, then that, that headache comes roaring back. And so every time you swallow those pills, it's just a, a reminder of your illness, that you're sick, that you're not well. And so it's not sufficient, and that's the problem with functional saviors. And then what about the poor priests? who are administrating these sacrifices, jump down to verse 11. It says, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. You know, it's like, um, it's like flipping uh, hamburger patties at, at Burger King during rush hour. Like the orders just keep coming in, coming in. You can just never seem to satisfy the, the demand. You can never seem to satisfy the hunger. And you go home and you, you sleep that night, but you know you have to go back the, the very next day. And these poor priests had to go back the very next day, continue sacrificing bulls, goats, and whatnot, hour after hour, because they could not take away the sins. And so what they were doing for them is, was never gonna take away their sins because they're just simply offering types. They're offering shadows of the real deal. It was never gonna get them forgiven and, and, and have them made right before God. It was never gonna change their lives. Now I know what you must be thinking. Of what significance is this to us? Jason, you're going on about bulls and goats and pigeons and whatnot. Thank goodness we're not like them, right? Thank goodness we're not under the old covenant. And yes, thank goodness we're not under the old covenant, but we certainly do have other things that we look to to make us feel right, to make us feel acceptable before God. We have other functional saviors. So let's ask ourselves some questions to help us identify them, right? Ready? Number one, what is something that you do that makes you feel acceptable before God? What is something that you do that makes you feel good and right before God? That if I do this thing, if I live this way, and then I get taken out by a bus or whatever it might be, I will be okay with God because I do this thing. 
or subconsciously, it, it just it makes you feel like a good person. So if you feel like a good person, you project that onto God and going, well, then God must see me as a good person. Is it coming to church? Is it putting something in the, the offering box? Is it reading your Bible? Helping a granny across the road? Is it all these, these good things? Or, or is it having a particular standard for yourself in terms of good things that you try and do most of the time and bad things that you try and refrain from doing most of the time? You see, what these answers possibly reveal about us is a functional savior of morality. The problem is our little neat box of morality, our little neat box of do's and don'ts doesn't come near God's holy law. It doesn't come near his holy standard. Furthermore, this, our functional savior of morality, all it's doing is simply governing our behavior. It's governing our behavior. It's not getting to the real deal, the real issue. And so when we slip up, then we fail miserably. And that then leads to the next question in identifying our functional saviors. How then do you deal with your sin? When you mess up, when you repeat the same sin over and over again, what do you do? Oh, you know, we, we feel really, really guilty. We've, you know, we feel not, not worthy to be a Christian. Maybe we say the sinner's prayer again because maybe you didn't take the first time, the second time, or the third time, or whatever it might be. We begin to bargain with God. Maybe we even begin to punish ourselves. God, don't worry, I'll punish myself. We, we make promises to God. Oh, Lord, don't worry, you, you, you'll, I promise you, you'll never see my car parked outside his place again or her place again from now on. I promise you, you're gonna have a good godly relationship. Or oh, God, I, I promise you, I'm never gonna click on that website again because here's what I've done. I'm gonna be accountable to so-and-so. I'm gonna put all of these strategies in place. I'm gonna do more of this, less, less of that. God, don't worry, by the end of the week, I'm gonna be a changed person. You won't recognize me. I'm sure we've all had these intentions before. And how successful have we been at them? See, it's not gonna work because it's just simply the modern version of sacrificing bulls and goats and observing the Mosaic law. And that was never designed to forgive us, never designed to make us right before God, never designed to actually change us, transform our lives. You know why? Because underneath every functional savior is ourselves and our self-effort. It's our attempted ability to be in control and keep in control of our lives. But that's what got us into the mess in the first place. Adam and Eve are attempting to take control despite what God told them, despite what God commanded them. And now we wanna be in control of how we repent. But now listen to what I'm not saying, particularly to the guys. I'm not saying you shouldn't put practical parameters in place. I'm not saying you shouldn't put practical strategies and be accountable to people. I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying is this. If that's the first and the only thing you do, if that's the first thing that we jump to, then we are missing a huge piece of the puzzle a gigantic piece of the puzzle, and we're just gonna set ourselves up to fail time and time again. You see, the big puzzle that we're missing is called the new covenant. It's called the gospel. 
is what our true Savior ushered in. So have a look at point two. The all-sufficiency of the true Savior. Because these Hebrew Christians could argue and go, well, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, who authorized this? Who authorized this, this change from, from animal sacrifices and this priestly system to now all of a sudden this, this one sacrifice? How do we know God's okay with that? Because he authorized it. Have a look at verse five. It says, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, and now he quotes Psalm 40, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Referring to the old covenant. The old covenant points towards this change. But now we, we just go, wait, wait, wait a minute. If, if God doesn't desire sacrifices, if he doesn't desire burnt offerings, then why did he institute them in the first place? What, then is, what does he desire? What is his real will then? So let's stay in the old covenant. And let's go to King David. Remember the guy that took out the big guy, Goliath? He was a man not only known as the man after God's own heart, but he was a man very well acquainted with, with sins. I mean, he pulled off some whoppers, right? Adultery, murder. He then says this in his famous repentance psalm, Psalm 51, verse 17. He says, the sacrifices of God are what? Are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. You won't despise those sacrifices. So now if we, if we put it all together, what we see is the sacrifices and burnt offerings were meant to be an expression or an outlet for a heart that is remorseful and is seeking to repent of their sins. But instead, the burnt offerings had just become a cold-hearted ritual. Israel had become so hardened in their sin that these sacrifices were not an, expressions, an expression of repentance, but rather just simply a way of ticking the box. Like, if, if I just do this, then it, it means God will stay happy in the corner, and then I can just keep doing what I want to do, and then I'll just come back at the end of the week, do another sacrifice, keep, stay in the corner, stay happy with me so I can go do my own thing. God doesn't want a ritual but he wants genuine hearts who genuinely want to put off their sin and genuinely live for the glory, his glory. But the big problem, the big problem is he knows we can't do that. We can't do it in and of our own strength. So let's allow the author of Hebrews to explain what he does. Look at verse eight. He says, when he said above, and I love this, this is why I love expositional preaching, even the, the writer of Hebrews, he's now gonna explain Psalm 40 to us. He says, when he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I've come to do your will. Now he explains it. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So can you see, 
the result of God authorizing the sacrifice of Jesus to, to end the old covenant and usher in the new covenant results in our sanctification. That's why we said right in the beginning, Christ's sacrifice once for all perfects us once for all. But let's just clarify what we mean by sanctification. Kind of double click on that word for a moment. It's the same Greek word for holy, or it's a derivative of the word hagios in, in Greek. So through faith in Jesus' atoning sacrifice for us, we have been made holy, or we have been declared holy, or another way of explaining it is we have been set apart. We've been set apart from sin by God to God and ultimately for God. Now naturally the Hebrews would argue, well wait a minute, you mean to tell me that one sacrifice, one sacrifice deems us holy, blameless, guilt-free and righteous before God? Because what that would imply is that one sacrifice deems us justified and forgiven of all of our sins, past, present and future. One sacrifice. So maybe preempting their argument, he says this in verse 11. Have a look at the priests again. He says, and, in, and every priest stands daily. Okay, I want you to keep that phrase, stands daily. Just keep that somewhere in your mind. Stands daily at his service. Here's what he does. Offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. Here's the big problem, which can never take away sins. Why can't they take away sins? because they can't take away our sinfulness. They don't have the power to overcome sin, death, and the devil over us. They don't have the power to sanctify us. They don't have the power to change us, to make us holy. Then, in contrast, Jesus, who brings in the new covenant, does this in verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, what does he do? He sat down at the right hand of God. You see the difference? These poor earthly priests under the old covenant standing daily making sacrifices, sacrifices that can't take away sins. What did Jesus do? He comes in, one sacrifice, does it all, then sits down. Because it's done. It's done. Verse 13 waiting from that time when he sat down until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. See, Jesus' sacrifice not only takes care of the penalty of our sin, so you're no longer condemned for your sin because it was all placed on Jesus, but he also destroyed the power of sin, death, and the devil over our lives. Victory has been declared over them and for us. So let's do a little self-evaluation test here. You ready? How many of you feel holy right now? How many of you feel sanctified? How many of you feel set apart from sin right now? Like, you know, you, you woke up in a perfectly holy mood. You got ready for church in a perfectly holy manner. You drove here in a perfectly holy manner. And I know this is not true. How many of you got here in a perfectly holy time? <laughs> so how does this whole deal work then? Because remember in verse 10, 
says we are sanctified. That's past tense, indicating that we are holy right now. So how come this doesn't play out in my life? He explains it to us in verse 14. For by a single offering, that's Jesus on the cross, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And I'm like, well, wait, wait, wait a minute. In verse 10, he said, we are sanctified, past tense. Now he's saying, we're being sanctified. Well, which one is it? It's yes. It's both. So here's my best shot at, at explaining it. You see the verse starts with a conjunction for. That means it's related to the previous verse, which says that after Jesus sacrificed himself on the cross, he sat down at God's right hand. Then verse 13 says, waiting, waiting, that's present continuous tense, from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. So in the same way that these enemies, sin, death, and the devil, have been defeated, right? The war is won, but they're still kind of wriggling around. It's kind of like, imagine this, like Jesus deals the devil a death blow, stabs him in the heart, bah, and he falls down. But he's, he falls down and he's, he's kind of wriggling around, trying to do as much damage as he possibly can before he breathes his last breath, or before Jesus finally throws him into hell for all eternity. So there is a definite victory. There was a death blow on the cross, but there's also a process to it, a a wiggling around until he becomes Jesus' footstool. So in the same way, if Jesus has taken all of our sin, past, present, and future, upon himself, then God looks at you and he sees no sin. He therefore declares you holy. He therefore declares you sanctified. But we know that that sin is still kind of wiggling around in us, dying a slow death until it will ultimately be dead at the return of Jesus. So again, there's a declaration over you. You are holy and perfect because of Jesus, but there's also a process of overcoming the sin in our lives, a process of becoming more like Jesus, a process of growing in spiritual maturity. So there's a completed sanctification declared over you, but a process of sanctification in you. I'll show it to you in the rest of our text. Have a look at verse 15. It says, and the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us uh, for after saying, and now he quotes Jeremiah 31, 33, he says, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, and this is the new covenant, right here, prophesied in the old covenant. He says, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. That's referring to this process of sanctification. In other words, how are we going to change? How are we going to become holy? How are we going to grow in this holiness that has been declared over us and won for us by the death and resurrection of Jesus? God says, I've got this. I've got this. I'm going to put my laws in your mind and in your heart. He has internalized his law. That's the new covenant, as opposed to the, ex the, the external law of the old covenant. That's the process of sanctification. We're gonna begin to live that out. Then he adds the completed sanctification. Look at verse 17. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these sins and lawless deeds, 
there is no longer any offering for sin. So through faith in Jesus' atoning sacrifice for you on the cross, your sins, past, present, and future, are not remembered by God. That doesn't mean that he has amnesia towards our sin. It means that we're not gonna be condemned for them. They have been taken care of. Therefore, when God looks at you, he declares over you, holy, blameless, above reproach. He sees you justified. And therefore, it goes without saying that if you're fully forgiven, if you're fully justified, there's no more need for any other sacrifices for your sin. Sunrise, there's no more need to look to functional saviors to make you feel acceptable or to make you right before God because Jesus has done it for you. There's no need for self-effort. He paid it once for all. Now, before I finish off, let me just clear up a couple of misconceptions about sanctification. The first one is this is that we will never be fully sanctified in this age. As long as we are alive on this planet, we will never be fully sanctified. Have a look at this. Uh, Philippians 1.6 says this. Paul writes and says, I am sure of this, that he, that's God, who began a good work in you. What's that? That's the, the process of sanctification, making you perfect, right? He says, will bring it to completion. I'm just thinking, there's some of you here this morning or listening to this later, you, you need to hold on to that. That's an amazing promise. No matter what you are going through, he has promised he will bring his work of sanctification, perfection in you. He will complete it in you. But when? When will it be complete? at the day of Jesus Christ, at the end of the age when Jesus returns for his church and finally makes a footstool out of the devil and our sin and death. Only when he appears will our sanctification be complete and we will be just like him, as holy as he is, as perfect as he is in all spheres of life. Wow, okay. Well then, does that mean we can just do whatever we want because we're not gonna be fully sanctified in this age so it's you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll until Jesus comes, right? No, the true believer can't have that attitude. Why? Because of what the Philippian verse is saying. God is working in you now. God is at work in you now, every single second of every single day that you breathe until Jesus comes back. He's not gonna allow you to be a slave of your sins and passions. Secondly, the process of sanctification in us is, is fruit that you have been declared justified. It's fruit of your, of your genuine faith in Jesus and what he did on the cross. The truly justified person makes war with their sin in his or her life. Which then brings us to the next misconception. You are not passive in the process of sanctification. So, not to contradict myself, but we are passive and we are active in sanctification. And so we've seen that there is a passive side where, where God is the one. He's the one who places the new heart in us. He's the one who puts the Holy Spirit in us. And so it's the new nature within us and the Holy Spirit. They are busy sanctifying us. God is working in us. That's the promise. But we also have an active role too. Look at Romans 8 verse 13. 
He says, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So there's both here. There's the passive and active roles. But who is responsible here for putting to death the sin in your life? He says, you are. You must put to death the deeds of the body. But how? In our own strength? Never. By the Spirit. We depend on the Holy Spirit to kill the desire and the temptations and to break that habitual sin in our lives. So the good news is we can have victory over the sin in our lives. No sin is master over us, but we will always be fighting sin until Jesus returns. But remember, through Jesus' sacrifice, it has been dealt the death blow, so we can overcome it. It's just, it's no longer the master over us. It no longer has power over us. It's still wriggling around, but now we have the power to fend it off. So the grip of sin, death, and the devil over us is getting weaker as our Christ nature within us is getting stronger. Some of you know this already. Some of you, as you look back over your life, you can see how you've overcome certain sins in your life. Others may have popped up along the way. But as you are growing in sanctification, it's almost like it's becoming more and more difficult to sin. Or you hate it when you do sin. You hate it when you fall into that temptation again. Those are all good signs. Those are all good signs that God is at work within you that the once for all sacrifice of Jesus is at work within you. So the good news, I wanna finish off by speaking to three groups of people. The good news for those of you who are in the, the whole try harder mindset, that overcoming your sin, overcoming your temptation and changing is all up to you. What you need to know is, is Jesus is your ultimate sacrifice, that he has done all the work for you on the cross. And because he has done all the work for you, you are therefore declared perfect before your heavenly father. You are declared justified before your heavenly father. Therefore, you are accepted because of Jesus. You are loved because of Jesus. So if you have to put a strategy in place, if you have to be accountable to someone, which I say, yes, go for it, but do it from a place of forgiveness do it from a place of rest that you are accepted, that you are justified on the basis of Christ's sacrifice for you. Secondly, this is good news to those of you who are so burdened under the weight of your sin that you're tempted to give up. You're so burdened by the consequences of sin and other people's sin in and over your life that you just, you're almost done. The good news is that you're being sanctified. God has promised. He has promised you. He will complete the work that he has started in you. And because of that, you can partner with him in what he's doing in you. And so you can have victory over the sin and the temptation. And finally, this is good news for those of you who don't know Jesus. Through believing in him as your Lord and Savior, you can be forgiven your sins, past, present, and future.
future. You can be made right, declared right with God. And you can receive a new nature. You can receive the Holy Spirit who seals your salvation and who begins to change you, begins to transform your life. And finally, you will get to be in glory with your heavenly father as an adopted son or daughter for all eternity. So listen to me. The once for all sacrifice of Jesus not only does something for you, but it does something to you. It not only forgives you your sins, but it helps you overcome your sins. It not only declares you righteous before God, but it helps you begin to live out that righteousness for his glory and your ultimate good. Functional saviors, they're just not gonna cut it. Cling to your savior because through him, he has perfected us and will perfect us for all eternity. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, words fail to thank you for your grace, to thank you for what you did on the cross for us. That you died the death we deserve to die but instead we got your life. What grace, what mercy. I pray please right now that you would have used this sermon to drop the truth of your sacrifice that you've paid for sins once for all, that it is only through your sacrifice that we are perfect before our heavenly Father's eyes. Please show us those of us here or listening to this later, if there, there are things that we're actually relying on in, in an attempt to try and make ourselves acceptable before you, God. Help us put those aside for all, for all eternity and just rely on you, Jesus. I pray for those, I pray for brothers and sisters here who are really, really struggling with sin or whatever it might be, heartache. They're not experiencing a healing that your, your cross came to do. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would apply the work of Jesus, what he did on the cross to our hearts, to our minds, to our bodies. Set us free, set us free. Help us live from the shadow of the cross in the joy of the cross. Set us free for your glory, Heavenly Father, and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.